Hi, you're about to get smarter in just a few minutes with Curiosity Daily from Curiosity.com. I'm Cody Goff. And I'm Ashley Hamer. Today, you'll learn about how we make vaccines to fight viruses like COVID-19 with help from Julia Shaletsky, Executive Director of the Center for Emerging and Neglected Diseases at UC Berkeley. You'll also learn about the weird history behind why we call steak beef and not cow. Let's satisfy some curiosity. How do viruses infect us and how can vaccines help? We thought now might be a good time to tackle the science on this podcast, since pretty much everyone on the planet is hoping for a COVID-19 vaccine right about now. So we got in touch with Dr. Julia Shaletsky. She's the executive director of the Center for Emerging and Neglected Diseases, the Drug Discovery Center, and the Immunotherapy and Vaccine Research Institute at UC Berkeley. Here's Dr. Shaletsky on how coronavirus infects us in the first place. The way viruses infect the body is very interesting because most of them can't just get into the cell. So I'm, I'm just going to use an analogy here. It's like if a guest wants to enter your house and the guest is the virus and the house is your body or your cell, the virus needs a key for the door to even get in. So it can't just walk through the wall. It needs to have a key and the key needs to fit in the lock and then the door opens and gets in. So for coronavirus, the key is this uh, spike protein that's outside on the virus, and it fits right onto a receptor called the ACE2 receptor that is expressed on human cells and coats the outside of human cells. And so what happens is the key from the virus interacts with the lock from the human cell, and then the door opens and the virus basically walks into your cell. And then it's going to use everything you have in your house, all your tools, all your supplies to just build copies of itself while you watch and it will make thousands of copies, basically destroying your house while it does it and taking all, everything you have in there to make copies. And then all the viruses will leave the place and infect the neighborhood. So this is roughly what a virus life cycle is like. And the genomic information, so the RNA that the virus has in the middle of its particle is very well protected. That's the blueprint that it uses to build identical other virus particles. But the virus has so minimal in, in terms of its genetic information, it needs a host to actually build um, the other virus particles. So it can, if you just have it in solution, Growing in a in a well without human cells, um, nothing will happen. You know, it needs human cells to really build the next generation. So to summarize, the virus's key is one of the spikes that protrude from its surface, literally called spike proteins. The lock it opens is a receptor called ACE2 that coats the outside of human cells. Once the key opens that lock, the virus gets inside the cell and makes lots of copies of itself. The virus contains RNA that's basically a blueprint for making those copies, but it still needs a host to actually build them. That's why it needs to use human cells to reproduce. Now let's get into vaccines. With vaccination, we try to interfere with several of these steps. The best vaccine in terms of response that we can have is very often a live virus vaccine because the immune system, there you would take the virus directly, you would make it weaker either by heating it up a bit or by adding some chemicals that, that kind of already give it a strong hit, but doesn't, doesn't fully kill it, you know. 
And then you would take those virus particles injected and that will give you the best of all immune responses because you have the natural virus, you know, the full surface of the virus is there. The immune system will just go crazy and attack it. But the problem with this is that coronaviruses generally don't grow well in tissue culture. So you can't manufacture enough virus to actually vaccinate large groups of the population. So in that case, we go and we take proteins from the virus that are outside on the surface that we think should be good enough for the immune system to recognize. And there's a lot of thinking that goes into which protein do you choose because you want something that does not mutate very readily, right? Because then if you build a vaccine against spike protein A that is now here, and then a month later, there's already so much mutation that the spike protein has a different shape and is no longer recognized by your antibodies that you build with the vaccine, and the vaccine is basically useless. So, and that's where the informatics approach comes in, because you have all these sequences from coronaviruses and maybe even from the same strain over time, you know, you have different sequences. So you look at them in a process called alignment. So you try to just line them up as much as you can with bioinformatics tools and find out which areas do never change and which areas change all the time, right? So this is what we call conservation. The areas that never change are considered conserved areas. And it's the same true in the human genome. You know, if you genetically look at everyone in the population, there are some elements that stay the same between humans no matter what, because they, they need to stay like this for us to function. And others, there's a lot of variation, right? So if you make a vaccine, you want to pick the ones that stay the same, that the virus can't really change easily because the virus, the way it spreads, it always wants to evade the pressure. Like if we have great vaccines, the only virus that's going to survive is the one that is not get harmed by the vaccine, right? So, so you're kind of selecting for that. So we need things that don't mutate, that are stable, and we think elicit a strong immune response and are easily accessed by antibodies in the body. For example, the spike protein is a pretty good one for that. And then the next step will be you take the spike protein sequence and you make a genomic construct. It's called a plasmid. So it's like that you can grow up this protein in a different host in bacteria or in yeast. So this is very similar how they make insulin, for example, for diabetics. You make the human insulin, but you make it in bacteria, right, in a biotechnological process. And that is very well established, works well. You can produce huge amounts of protein. We have these large, it's almost like in a brewery, large um, instrumentation where you can grow up a lot of bacteria at a time. So that can work very well. With that, you can make a large dose of vaccine um, and also in the regulated fashion um, that is required for approval. There's a third type of vaccine that's actually in clinical trials right now called mRNA vaccines. They're very similar to the vaccine Julia was just talking about, only instead of injecting you with the protein itself, you get injected with messenger RNA that contains a genetic blueprint so your body can produce the proteins by itself. Regardless of which vaccine we develop, the next step is to perform clinical trials to make sure the vaccines are safe. If you want to learn more about that, then you can hear our full uncut conversation with Dr. Shaletsky in a special episode we're releasing this weekend. In the meantime, check back tomorrow to hear more from our conversation as we get into the challenges of testing people for the coronavirus. If you've ever wondered why we call meat things like beef, 
pork, mutton, and venison instead of cow, pig, sheep, and deer, you can thank the lousy communication skills of a long-dead Anglo-Saxon king. His communication, or lack thereof, set in motion a whole series of invasions, culminating in the French invasion of the English language. Here's a history lesson you can really sink your teeth into. King Edward the Confessor died on January 5th, 1066, and as he had no children, his brother-in-law Harold Godwin was quickly elected to succeed him as King of England. Problem was, King Edward had apparently forgotten to tell anyone that he promised the throne to his first cousin once removed, William, Duke of Normandy. William, understandably, wasn't happy. Neither was the new King Harold's brother Tostig, who thought he deserved the throne. He allied with the King of Norway to battle King Harold's armies, but was eventually defeated. Unfortunately, those battles still weakened Harold's victorious army, and that made it easier for the Norman armies of Duke William, remember King Edward's first cousin once removed, who was promised the throne, for his armies to invade and defeat the Anglo-Saxons for good, earning William the nickname William the Conqueror. On Christmas Day in 1066, William was crowned King of England, and the Normans made themselves at home. And that's when the language invasion began. The Normans spoke French. Their newly conquered subjects spoke English. Over time, the Normans bequeathed more than 10,000 words to English. And since they were the ruling class, most of these referred to posh topics like nobility, think crown, castle, and sovereign, government and the law, like city, parliament, justice, prison, and high living words about things like cuisine, banquet, herb, roast, and biscuit. So while humble farmers kept calling their animals cows, swine, and sheep, once those animals were put on a fancy plate, their names became French. The old French word for cow? Boeuf. The French word for pig? Pouc. French for sheep? Mouton. Sound familiar? Sounds delicious. <laughs> so let's rewind and talk about what we learned today. So to recap, it would be great if we could develop a live virus vaccine for the coronavirus. That's where we would take the virus, weaken it, and then inject it. So your immune system would attack it with no mercy. Unfortunately, coronavirus doesn't grow well in tissue culture, so you can't manufacture enough to vaccinate large groups of people. Right, so we'll go to plan B, which is proteins. We'll figure out which proteins from the outside of the virus stay the same over time and which ones change over time. Researchers can take the proteins that never change and use their genetic sequence to grow them in bacteria or yeast. And they can do this at scale. It's how we produce things like insulin. And thank goodness for that. <laughs> yeah, especially for Cody. <laughs> yeah. And of course, then you get into things like clinical trials and then producing things at scale. And Dr. Shaletsky gets further into that in our full conversation, which we'll be posting over the weekend for those who are interested in doing a very deep dive because we really get into it with her. Yeah, it was a great interview. And it was also great that we got our words for meat from the Norman conquests because William the Conqueror's people spoke French. So when they took over England, some words were adopted and the rest is history. And that is great because I feel more cultured now. I feel like I'm automatically bilingual, even though that's totally a fallacy and not true at all. You know, this particular fact about the Norman conquest, I have remembered since high school. I learned it in high school from my Latin origins class. And I thought it was just so cool that I've like told people about it any chance I get. And now I'm talking about it on the podcast. It's great. Here's your next party trick. 
for the next time you can attend a party. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, now you, listener, can be as cool as me at parties. <laughs> <laughs> Today's episode was scripted and edited and produced by both of us, starting with Ashley Hamer, who's the managing editor for Curiosity Daily. Today's episode was also scripted and edited by Cody Goff. Join us again tomorrow to learn something new in just a few minutes. And until then, stay curious. Stay curious.